And we are live. What's up, guys? Welcome to Fed It. Today, we're going to be covering the Green River Killer, man. This one is a crazy one. This guy has the second most confirmed kills in U.S. history behind Samuel Little. Got a lot to cover. Let's get right into it, man. A special agent with Homeland Security Investigations, okay, guys? HSI. The cases that I did mostly were human smuggling and drug trafficking. No one else has these documents, by the way. Here's what Fed It covers. Dr. Lafredo confirmed... Lacerations due to stepping on glass. Murder investigation. You see him reaching in his jacket. You don't know. And he's positioning. Been on February 13, 2019. You're facing two counts of premeditated murder. Racketeering and Rico conspiracy. Young slime life. Here and after referred to as YSL. The defendants. Uh, 6 9 And then this is Billy Seiko right here. Now, when they first started, guys, 6 9 ran. Well, I'm a fed. I'm watching this music video. You know, I'm bobbing my head like, hey, this shit lit. But at the same time, I'm pausing. Oh, wait, who this? Right? Oh, who's that in the back? Firearms and violent crimes. A.K.A. Bushaisi violated. You're ordered to stay away from the victim. Trapper Bushaisi arrested after shooting at King of Diamond, oh, Miami Strip Club, injured one this person. Is the, this is the one that, that's going to fuck him up because this gun is not traceable. Well, it happened at the gun range. Here's your boy, 42 Doug, right here on the left. Okay. Sex trafficking and sex crimes. They can effectively link him to paying an underage girl. And the first bomb went off right here. Inspired by Al Qaeda. Two terrorists, brothers, the Zokar Sarnev and Tamer Lynn Sarnev. When the cartel shipped drugs into the country. As this guy got arrested for um, espionage, okay, trading secrets with the Russians for monetary compensation. The largest corrupt police bust in New Orleans history. So he was in this bad boy. We're going to go over his past, the gang ties, so that this all makes sense. All right, what's up, guys? Welcome to Fed It Man. Today we're going to be covering the Green River Killer, a.k.a. Gary Ridgway. I actually filmed this earlier this week, but then YouTube hit me with some BS copyright stuff. So here we go. Second time is always a charm, right? She's supposed to be the third, but we're just going to do this, call the second on this one. But uh, anyway, let's get, just uh, get right into it, guys. All right, so here he is, uh, Gary Ridgway here, guys, American serial killer. As I said before, this guy has the second most confirmed kills behind your boy, Samuel Little. Uh, and here we go, Gary Leon Ridgway, born February 18, 1949, also known as the Green River Killer, is an American serial killer and sex offender. He was initially convicted of 48 separate murders. As part of his plea bargain, another big conviction was added, bringing the total number of convictions to 49 making him the second most prolific serial killer in United States history, according to confirmed murders. And that is second to uh, your boy, Sammy Little, who I also broke down on another episode of Fed It, if you guys want to check that one out. Uh, he killed many teenage girls and women in the U.S. state of Washington during the 1980s and 1990s. I've, as I told you all before, a lot of these serial killers, the most prolific ones, were operated between the 1960s, you know, from the Zodiac Killer, all the way up into the 90s. Why? Because DNA testing wasn't really a thing that was used until about, I think it was first introduced in the mid to late 80s, and then they didn't really start using it like all the way in trials um, conclusively until about the 90s. Um, so that's why a lot of these serial killers, to include this guy, were able to evade detection for so long. Um, most originated victims were alleged to be sex workers and other women in vulnerable circumstances, including underage runaways. The press gave him his nickname after the first five victims were found in the Green River before his identity was known. He strangled his victims, usually by hand, but sometimes using ligatures. After strangling them, he would dump their bodies in forested and overgrown areas in King County, often returning to the bodies to have sexual intercourse with them. So, yeah, this guy was a sick bastard, as y'all know. But if you guys notice, there's a couple of trends here that a lot of uh, serial killers participate in. 
Uh, one is to target sex workers, right? Because they're kind of a vulnerable demographic of person that typically you're not going to go looking for them. Or if they do turn up missing, the police aren't going to put all that effort into looking for them because, you know, let's be honest here. Sex workers a lot of times back then in the 80s, not nowadays with these OnlyFans girls, but back then they're on the streets. They typically be moving interstate a lot of the times. Uh, it was common for them to be runaways or uh, not communicating with their family. They don't have people that care about them like that. So these are people that can go missing for a long period of time without too much people caring. And on top of that, the police aren't going to put as much effort into looking for them because it could be a waste of resources. Let's be honest. A lot of times, you know, they might not have just gone missing. They just wanted to disappear off the map or move to another state, whatever. And a local police department, their responsibility isn't to go interstate and find someone if they're not able to find proof of a legit kidnapping so this is why sex workers are able to be exploited so often by these serial killers especially back then uh predating modern technology um and also uh you notice he strangled his victims this is very common among serial killers um you look at uh, ted bunnies the john wayne gacy's the jeffrey Dahmers, etc a lot of these guys uh really enjoy the process of you know murdering their victims and strangling is a very personal way to do it and a lot of these guys get like a sick satisfaction from it whether it's you know btk buying torture kill your boy uh you know ted bundy jeffrey dahmer john wayne gacy uh the um samuel little right all these guys who i've covered by the way extensively on the channel if you guys look here which is the documentary we're going to be reacting to but if i go ahead let me go ahead and duplicate this tab for y'all real fast and i'll show you I'd guys the playlist real fast okay I have a whole uh, K-Flock videos up, by the way, too, guys. Go check that out. But I have a whole playlist on serial killers here, as you guys can see. Um, oh, uh, the Night Stalker, right? The Night Stalker is actually one of the few uh, serial killers, guys, that killed his victims through pretty much any means necessary. He was strangling them, stabbing them, uh, shooting them, and he didn't really care about which demographic he went after. So this was kind of an anomaly, and actually was why it was so hard to catch him. But all these other guys, bro, uh, the Railroad Killer, the Unabomber was using bombs. He's, he was unique, too. Uh, the toy box killer, even though they were never able to find a body on him, it's pretty much known that he killed his victims because there's there was a river right, right near him but or a big lake. You guys can go check out that episode if you guys want. He, this guy was pretty sadistic. But regardless, all these other guys pretty much strangling their victims. He included Night Stalker, even though it, was, it wasn't his main way. Uh, and the Zodiac killer was also a little bit different. He stabbed and uh, shot some of his victims as well. But, um, you know, the most famous guys, your Bundys, your Gacy's, your Dahmer's, Sammy Little, etc., all strangle most of the time. And this guy, obviously, Gary Ridgway, was no different. So, uh, yeah, we're going to go ahead. Oh, he was also involved in necrophilia, too, going back and having sexual intercourse with them, which was something that your boy uh, Ted Bundy over here used to do. Okay. Um, very similar MO, too, killing them in very rural, weird areas in the forest, pretty much every girl's nightmare. Bundy and Green River Killer were very similar in that regard. So, matter of fact, fun little fact, uh, Ted Bundy, offered to help with catching the Green River Killer when he was in prison to help keep himself from getting the death penalty. Obviously, they ended up uh, executing him anyway, but the Green River Killer had a very similar uh, MO as uh, as Ted Bundy and vice versa. Well, Ted Bundy did it first, but they both had very similar MO. So Bundy, you know, did assist to some degree with helping find the Green River Killer, even though I don't think it was all the way. But uh, anyway, uh, we got a documentary here, guys. Um, Gary Ridgway, Sins, Sins of the Father. We're going to go ahead and get right into this thing. And uh, and yeah, we're going to react to it and uh, hope you guys enjoy it. Let's get into it. Police found the badly decomposed nude body of a woman Saturday night. Another terrible discovery in the woods. A sexual psychopath who preys on young prostitutes. 
every time they arrive at a scene, there's multiple women. They were dealing with something huge. The number of bodies that are turning up is almost hard for us to even wrap our head around. We're talking 40 people here. This is unprecedented. Mothers, daughters, sisters, friends. They were loved by people and missed by people. The bodies were piling up. We had a serial killer on our hands. The victims of the Green River Killer. The Green River Killer. Been called the Green River Killer ever since the first bodies were pulled from this river. The public was running out of patience. It was like, come on, catch this guy. Now, on the 20th anniversary of the arrest that shook the nation, we're revisiting one of the most twisted stories in the annals of American crime to ask... How did this monster remain hidden in the shadows for so long? He was incredibly successful at convincing the world that he was Ned Flanders, just a nice guy and a good family man. Why couldn't the cops catch him? A polygrapher said he didn't do these crimes, he's innocent. And what did those closest to him, including his own son, know? Matthew was torn between his love for his dad versus the reality of what was going on. Husband, father, colleague, killer. This is Sins of the Father, the Green River Killer. Till he was kill, kill, kill. July 15th, 1982. A pair of boys are riding their bikes across the Peck Bridge, just south of Seattle, when suddenly... They stopped for a moment on the bridge to catch their breath, and as they looked down into the rushing water, they saw something that caught their eye. Initially, they think, okay, is this a mannequin that's been discarded down in the river? And they go down to investigate the boys slowly wade into the Green River, then stop short of the object. They actually see it's not a mannequin. They can see the hair of a young woman sort of flow. Could you imagine being a kid going to the river and seeing a real dead body there? You know, and at that point, it's probably decaying. It smells really bad, like just really, really sick stuff. And uh, and this happens a lot, you guys. You'd be surprised how many times children are actually the ones that find, um, or young individuals, for that matter, teenagers, whatever it may be, are the ones to find uh, a dead body. So, wild stuff. Going underneath the water, she was naked. She had jeans wrapped around her neck. Detectives hurried to the scene. Kent Police Department determined her name was Wendy Caulfield. Cause of death was asphyxiation. He had the ligature and that was placed into evidence. They could tell there was a quite a struggle. Her arm was broken. There was some visible bruising as well. Wendy Caulfield is just 16 years old. Her mother, Virginia, tells investigators the teen was no stranger to trouble. She said, well, I kind of knew this was going to happen. She was going down the wrong path. Wendy was known to be a hitchhiker. It was also rumored. 
why it's important to have fathers, man. Crazy stuff like this, very sad. Remembered that she had been on the strip acting as a sex worker, so they knew that she was in dangerous situations. She was living on the street for survival. She was involved in drugs. She'd actually been in juvenile detention for a recent theft and uh, had snuck out on kind of a day pass to visit with her family and she hadn't returned to the juvenile detention center. The horrific murder sent shockwaves throughout the town of Kent. It's a small suburb, no significant violent crime, relatively safe environment what most people would call a quiet community. So any type of violent crime, everybody would be aware of it. Everybody was scared. It was just frightening because we had no idea who the killer is. Well, all right. So anytime there's, you know, murders like this, guys, it's always going to hit the news, especially back then. This is prior to social media. So newspapers, Television, this was the way people got their news, right? Well, there was no Instagram or Facebook or MySpace for that matter. None of that existed back then. Police begin investigating the teen's killing. 10 miles away in Renton, it's just another day in the life for seven-year-old Matthew Ridgeway. On summer break from nearby East Hill Elementary School. Matthew would spend his summers riding his bikes, playing outside with his friends, running around the neighborhood, coming home too late for dinner. And Matthew Ridgway, hmm, wonder who that is, okay? <laughs> we just talked about Garrett Ridgway earlier. He had a very good life. A life he shares with his single mother, Marsha. Marsha just had a job at a dental office. So she wasn't making a whole lot of money, but she was trying to make ends meet. Life for... Any single mom is really hard. The pair are still trying to find their footing one year after Marsha's contentious divorce from Matthew's father, Gary. They had Matthew two years into their marriage and everything seemed good until Matthew was about five years old. And Marsha tells a story where they were engaging in BDSM and Gary choked her and he went too far. All right, so guys, this is very important because you're going to see that this plays a role in him uh, and his criminal activity later on. And that was the first time that she was really afraid of him. And she put a stop to any of the activities, which of course made Gary very upset. The relationship that Gary and Marsha had wasn't great for Marsha. Gary really wanted her to just cook, clean, basically do everything. He wanted sex constantly two, three times a day and that just started to become a bit much for Marsha. Gary, for his part, tells friends at his job at the nearby Kenworth truck factory a different story. We worked in the paint department, mostly worked mornings. I think we got along because our lockers were so close. I would go in early and he'd be the only one in there. So we had a lot of time to talk. He had a crush on me. He would tell me about his family and his wife. He gets irate when he thinks about her because she's screwed him over for child support. I think that's Cap. If he had a crush on her, she would have been dead too. <laughs> if he really liked her like that, he would have been choking her out too. He's capping, man. And then spousal support. He can hold a grudge forever. Stop the cap. There is two Garys. Nice. 
co-worker Gary, and then there was crazy-eyed Gary. When he'd get really mad, his eyes would get all watery and crazy-looking. Don't F with Gary today. But when it comes to his son, Matthew, Ridgeway is quick to table his anger. He'd turn into good dad Gary, and he'd have the happy face. His eyes would start sparkling again. He really did love his son. Gary spoiled him, said he gives him everything he wants. Decades later, in a police interview, Matthew recalls those formative years with his single dad. I saw my dad every, not every, not every weekend, but pretty much every other weekend. And on most of the holidays, I would see him. He would play lawn darts with us, camping and fishing. When I was younger, I can remember a Christmas where my dad got a racetrack and set it up. He'd always, you know, be there for me. Gary had a great relationship with his son, Matthew. Matthew has said that his dad really kind of went the extra mile to try to make all the time they spent together memorable and special. While Gary and his son enjoy their carefree summer together, in nearby Kent, the mood grows increasingly terrifying. There, on August 12, 1982, an employee at a meatpacking plant along the banks of the Green River is taking a smoke break. When he looks up, he spotted something sort of caught up on a log in the middle of the Russian River, and he thought maybe it's a dead animal. He decided to go down, get a closer look, and at that point, he realized it was another naked, dead woman. Police identify the body as 23-year-old Deborah Lynn Bonner. Her corpse is found less than half a mile from where Wendy Caulfield's was discovered only a month earlier. And the M.O. is strikingly similar. She was... Oh, man. Now the trends are starting to match up. It's also naked and had also been strangled. And when the detectives began to look into her death, they determined that she was also a prostitute. Detective Dave Reichert of the King County Sheriff's Office catches the case and digs in. Questions in my mind are, you know, is this related? Are these two related? I knew they were in the river. I knew they were up against the river bank. I knew that they were submerged in water. All those things are kind of going through your mind. But before Reichert can connect those murders, authorities discover two more young women in the Green River. The bodies almost seemed to be staged or placed. They were in the water. One woman was facing up, one woman was facing down with large rocks on them to keep them in that position. The killer had inserted rocks into their genitals. It was a horror. Wow, incredible. Scene. 40 years later, Reichert can still vividly recall the nightmarish tableau. One of the victims was on her back, and you could see her face. And one hand was loose in, in, the, in the river. And as the river swept over them slowly around that bend, her hand just kind of waved back and forth 
And I remember thinking, she's sort of saying, hey, I, I'm here, I'm right here, you know, help me. And uh, those are memories, of course, that stay with you forever. And a lot of the times, guys, when you come up on a murder victim and you look at the evidence around them, the, the victim can't speak, but the body does. And the evidence is there to give you the untold story of what really went down. And if the investigator is savvy enough and if there's enough evidence, the story becomes very clear as to who was involved and who was responsible. The evidence speaks for the victim that can no longer do so. Investigators begin processing the scene only to make another shocking discovery. The grass is tall, it's filled with blackberry bushes. And I was moving down the bank of the river and taking notes and photographs. And we found another young female body laying in the tall grass. She was unclothed for the most part. Her bra was pulled up over the top of her breast. She had a ligature around her neck and, and had not been there very long. It's like every time they arrive at a scene, there's multiple women. They find so much more than they ever bargained for. And it felt like they were dealing with something huge. Police identify the three women as Cynthia Hines, Marcia Chapman, and Opal Mills. Cynthia and Opal were only about 17 and 16 years old, respectively. They were actually friends. Marsha, on the other hand, was in her early 30s. She's a young mom, and she was a known sex worker. All of these women had been strangled with ligatures of some kind, sometimes pieces of their own clothing, or just the bare hands of an assailant. The striking similarities lead detectives to a grim conclusion. We did believe we had a serial killer on our hands. And that is always when the police department goes on high alert because whenever you have a serial killer on the run, what ends up happening, guys, is that starts to affect the town's ability to create business, create revenue, because people are going to be scared to go there. Uh, and it starts to get a bad reputation. And, of course, from a political standpoint, when it comes to the mayor, the police chief, the individuals that are charged with keeping the town safe and keeping it, you know, hustling and bustling from a economic standpoint, that starts to put them in a bad light. So then task force start being made and things start to get things start to get prioritized, which you guys are going to see here very soon. Word of the killings quickly spreads across the greater Seattle region. In Seattle this morning, police are hunting a mass murderer, a sexual psychopath who preys on young prostitutes. This story absolutely explodes. People immediately. And this is before social media, guys, okay? So going viral back then was viral for real. <laughs> Want to know what's being done? I'm scared. I really am. I... I'm almost afraid to open up my door. So now we've gone from a couple of bodies found to three more, which brings us up to five over the course of a month. And the community is terrified, especially for their daughters, their sisters, their wives. It really felt like they were dealing with a madman on the loose. No one knew if they were safe. In nearby Renton, Marcia and Gary Ridgway keep the increasingly alarming news from their young son, Matthew. 
Uh, did he ever talk about the Green River killings? You said he never did to you. That's me. But try as his parents may to shield him from the horrors, Matthew Ridgway will become forever linked to one of the most prolific serial killers in the history of American crime. The victims of the Green River Killer. The Green River Killer. Been called the Green River Killer ever since the first bodies were pulled from this river. A lot of newspapers called them the Green River Killings, and he became the Green River Killer from that point on. Police in King County, Washington, are hunting a man dubbed the Green River Killer. After discovering the bodies of five suspected prostitutes dumped in or near the river, running through the Seattle suburbs. The media, of course, wants answers right away. The families want answers right away. The community is starting to get upset. I mean, there's literal protesting in the streets demanding why haven't you found the predator that is terrorizing our community? We're just at the beginning stages of the investigation. We don't have all the answers. So the pressure is intense and it's on immediately. Although Marsha Ridgway and her seven-year-old son, Matthew, are living just 10 miles away from the crime scenes, they'll later tell investigators they are quite familiar with the killer's dumping ground. Did you and your father ever go biking or walking along any rivers? And you said yesterday you specifically remember the Green River. Yes. And how old were you at that time? Um, Roughly. I don't have an age, but I was I was not old enough to have a bike. I was in a uh, child seat. So he would actually ride you. Yes. You'd be on the back. Yes. Were you bicycling? Did you ever stop and go swimming? Yeah, yeah, we did um, on Green River. Mm -hmm. Is that dirty, mucky in there? Yes, there is. And was it your understanding that your dad knew uh, a lot of camping sites and wooded areas within 45 to 60 minutes of the house? We would take drives and we'd pull off the side of the road and find little off stream and you know, pull in. He liked going down there as long as there wasn't a lot of other people around. It's interesting to see the the stark contrast between the family experiencing Gary Ridgway versus his victims. They're seeing the human side, the loving father slash husband, you know, average, typical guy going to work every day, earning a living, right? Versus the victims are seeing the worst humanity has to offer. And and it never it never fails, right? The people that are closest to the serial killer are always shocked. It seemed to me that he didn't like being around lots of other people. They made him uncomfortable. We would pretty much end up trying to stay away from campgrounds. And uh, most of these are within an hour's drive of the SeaTac area, right? Yeah, pretty much. Maybe a little more than an hour, but pretty much so. Did you ever stop and have sex along the Green River? Yes. <laughs> Jeez. Whereabouts? Ah, uh, lots of places. <laughs> the banks and the tall grass. Uh, during the nighttime or during daytime? Nighttime and daytime, both. 
Marsha. He was practicing, man. Did ask Gary about what was happening with the bodies turning up at the rivers. And he would just be very dismissive of it. He acted very chill about the whole thing. Like, yeah, this is happening. Yeah, I ain't strangling no bitches. Um, trust me, it ain't me, man. There's some other whack job out there. But, you know, they're prostitutes. With five murdered women on their hands and no leads, the task force gets an unexpected break one month into their investigation when 43-year-old Melvin Foster walks into the sheriff's office to file a report. Melvin Foster is a cab driver who works primarily on the strip, and he tells investigators he feels that he has uh, information that could help them find the killer. This particular part of Seattle was known as the SeaTac Strip. It was sort of right by the airport and became a seedy area that included places like topless bars running 24-7. And obviously, with that, it brought a good deal of sex work to the streets. Melvin was very well versed on the strip area. He would often give these girls rides. He said, it's Seattle, it's raining. They don't want to be standing out in the rain, so I'll give them a ride or I'll give them in their John ride. Foster suggests the killer could be a cab driver and volunteers to help detectives identify him. Melvin gave off bad vibes from the beginning. He was really into younger women. He'd been married five different times. He was a former thief who had gone to jail for stealing a car. Inve oh, all those red flags. Investigators are immediately suspicious. They ask Foster to take a polygraph test. And he fails it. I sat down, I interviewed him. He at first denied knowing any of the victims. And then when pressed, he knew all of the victims, had them in his taxi cab. It seemed like he wanted to be close to the investigation and investigators are thinking, okay, is this the person we're looking for? That was, I think, what really made the police feel that they were on the right path with Melvin. Detectives begin round the clock surveillance on Foster believing it's only a matter of time before he strikes again. Not only that, they want to see, well, we have him under surveillance. If the murders stop, this is another sign that he's our guy. He was the primary suspect. He was an odd sort of person. He was intelligent, but he was just different. You can see the footage in some of the interviews. He came off strange. He definitely made a few strange comments to reporters that uh, really stood out to investigators. Are you scared at all? Scared, no. Fright is for the guilty. When you think of the profile of somebody who is targeting young women, he just... He came off weird. They're like, bro, this has got to be the fucking guy, man. This has got to be him. But you guys will see very soon that it wasn't, obviously. Just seem to be the right fit. Being weird is not a crime. Police search Foster's house, but find nothing. Still, it doesn't quell their suspicions. He's saying, like, I knew a lot of the girls. I take the girls different places. You know, I've been in a lot of these areas. I know these areas. So things, like, for them are matching up. 
line here. Did you kill all those women or what? No, but I wish I did. I wish I did know who did. When local cab driver Melvin Foster suddenly inserts himself into the Green River investigation in the autumn of 1982, it raises alarm bells for detectives. Unbeknownst to investigators, 32-year-old divorced dad Gary Ridgway is also raising the eyebrows of his colleagues at the Kenworth Truck Factory with his own strange behavior. When I first met Gary, I just thought the weird little stuff he was saying was just like quirks. Some of the girls that worked there, he couldn't stand. He called them sluts. And that's all they wanted to do is hook up and get effed. And I was like, calm down, Gary. Every time he turns red, I know he's going to start saying crazy stuff. <laughs> Misogyny. He would hide around the shop and stare at people. My sister-in-law would say stupid stuff to him. I used to tell her, what are you doing? You're poking a lion. Just keep in your mind that he could be the Green River Killer. While the killer continues to elude authorities, he does leave another calling card. Only this time, it's nearly six miles away from the Green River. Motorcyclists found the badly decomposed nude body of a woman Saturday night. Police do believe that this latest victim is related to the Green River case. She's found in a new spot. This was a wooded area that was very close to the airport, but still pretty secluded, pretty well covered. Police ID the body as Giselle Lavorne, a 17-year-old sex worker missing for over two months. Giselle was smart. She had 145 IQ. She had a lot going for her, but then of course, she met the wrong guy. And Giselle worked the streets in order to provide for her boyfriend slash him. Aw, oh, man. 145 IQ out there in the streets, man. Stupid. Stupid. Investigators soon realized they've stumbled upon another dumping site. The killer's change in dumping venues initially throws authorities. I'm not sure how common it is to switch up your sites. Another terrible discovery in the woods in South King County. They fear another victim of the Green River Killer. Some suspect he's simply trying to stay one step ahead. At the time, it was all over the media. So he was probably watching and following these stories and realized, okay, this is an area that they're watching very closely. This is very common with the serial killers, guys. Also, a lot of them, let's be honest here, are clout chasers. Your boy, the Zodiac Killer, used to send notes into the police and letters, you know, with literally cryptograms of them having to decode it. BTK, same thing, sending taunting letters, dolls that are tied up. Um, Ted Bundy, you know, famously defended himself on camera in the first murder trial televised in the United States. So even though he wasn't a full-on law student, like uh, he was a law student, but he wasn't a full-on lawyer and ended up taking a big-ass L for that one. But these guys love the attention. You know what I mean? They really do. The Night Stalker, when he was in trial, he was wearing his sunglasses indoors, thinking he was a rock star. So um, this was cloud chasing to another level. Again, this is before the age of social media. So, you know, when you really got clouded up back then, it was cloud for real because there was no social media or anything. So you had to rely upon the big mainstream media outlets 
to give you a platform. And when you do crazy stuff like this, you're probably going to get talked about on, you know, these platforms, newspapers, television shows, talk shows, radio, all these old um, legacy media platforms. So I think that was an act of self-preservation, honestly, to just kind of move a little bit where we're going to go to dump these bodies so that I can evade capture. By the fall of 1982, police attribute six murdered and scores of missing sex workers to the Green River Killer. People became frustrated, the media, the community, the command staff, the politicians who were providing the money to fund the, the task force started to grow a little bit irritable. They were mothers, they were daughters, and they were sisters, they were friends, and they were loved by people and missed by people. They were important to somebody. And that's what really needed to register. And I think this became something people could relate to. I was scared to death because they couldn't find him. They were finding bodies every week. I mean, they were just dropping like flies. And I thought, man, this is horrifying. It's like a, a movie. Marsha Ridgway is also growing increasingly concerned. The victims all worked in the SeaTac strip near her ex-husband Gary's place, a place their seven-year-old son Matthew often visits. That's the strip where a lot of the prostitutes will walk because it's close to the airport and there's a bunch of cheap motels up and down there. And every time I've driven down that road, there's at least 20 of them just hanging out down there. Is he familiar with SeaTac Airport at all? Yeah, he's familiar with SeaTac Airport. There was a bank machine there. I know that he went over there and used it when we were married, which therefore I assume he used it after we were married because he always did before. Marsha specifically fixated on the fact that Gary liked to take walks and go jogging in the area where these women were being abducted. As time went on, people began to get nervous, wondering if this man, if he's capable of killing these people over and over and over again, where you're finding bodies in clusters around the city. He's capable of anything. With no other leads, detectives bring their main suspect back in for questioning, Melvin Foster. But the grilling goes nowhere. He always denied it, that he had any direct part in the Green River killings. Uh, in fact, he told the task force he was going to sue them. He went to the local press. He said that they were harassing him. More women were actually going missing while he was being tailed and surveilled. So it was starting to look more and more like he wasn't their guy. By the spring of 1983, 21 sex workers are reported missing, including 18-year-old Marie Malvar. Only this time, there's a witness. What happened was Marie ended up- Here we go, baby. Up ...getting into a vehicle. This was a maroon truck, and what was distinctive about it was it had a spot of primer on it. And her boyfriend slash pimp saw this from afar. He was watching. And he said it seemed like Marie was arguing with the guy a little bit, but then she got in and she drove away. Marie's boyfriend had a bad feeling about it. He actually decided, I'm going to follow them. So he's 
following them, but then the maroon truck loses him and he can't find them. Marie doesn't come back that night. So the next day, Marie's boyfriend goes to her father's house, tells him what he saw, and the father says, okay, you and I need to go find that truck. The men search the surrounding area and eventually find what they believe is the same maroon pickup truck. It's parked in front of the home of a 34-year-old divorced dad and paint shop worker named Gary Ridgway. Oh, boy. Gotcha, bitch. In early September 1983, Marie Malvar's family reports the missing 18-year-old sex worker's last known location to the local police, the home of 34-year-old divorced dad, Gary Ridgway. Police arrive to question Ridgway when his son Matthew is staying at his mother's. The police officer who knocked on the door had actually gone to school with Gary Ridgway, so they knew each other. And the police basically asked, hey, do you know this girl, Marie? Gary said, no. Do you know where she is? No. Is there anybody here with you? No. And the police left. They didn't ask to go inside. They didn't look inside. They didn't press him any further. Stupid. Matter of fact, double L. You stupid. Cops lazy, man. That's as far as it goes. Which and again, when it's hookers, guys, this is what I mean when I say the police don't take it as seriously because they're a class of individual that is prone to going missing, quite frankly, because of their profession, traveling interstate, going to different places, uh, the nefarious types of people that they're around typically where they might disappear for long periods of time. Police don't take looking for hookers, quite frankly, seriously, as unfortunate as that sounds because of the type of individuals that they are. And they don't want to waste police resources looking for someone that might not necessarily be missing. To a lot of people may seem crazy with so many women going missing and being murdered. Marie was considered a missing person and was added to a list of names that were actively being investigated. And her story just kind of faded into the background. For his part, Gary Ridgway quietly returns to his job at the Kenworth Truck Factory. And spending weekends with his son, Matthew, returns 11 that same month. He loved his son. He'd say he was a good kid and he was proud of him and stuff. He'd talk about how smart he was. But while Gary and his son retreat to their happy home, outside, the darkness grows. By the end of November 1983, police have recovered the bodies of 13 young women and list an additional 25 missing. Investigators look for a pattern to the locations but can't find one. However, they do find other similarities. The one thing that's connecting all of these cases to each other was the cause of death. All of these women were strangled. It's a fetish Marsha Ridgway knows well, at the hands of her ex-husband, Gary. Did he ever try to choke you? Yes. From behind? From behind. And was choking me. And it was getting tighter and tighter, and I thought it was somebody else, that there was somebody else there, and I started screaming. And then I realized that it was him, and I started fighting him. And... um. 
he finally let go and he kind of pushed me. But you know it was scary. I know it was scary, yes. Marsha said the sex became more aggressive, a little more violent, that they were going into some things that she wasn't very comfortable with, experimenting with a little bit of bondage and BDSM. And this was scary for Marsha. She really did not like it. The marriage between Marsha and Gary was a very unequal and toxic one. He was very controlling with her. And I think that this stemmed from his first wife leaving him for somebody else. That, that level of rejection for him, he never wanted to feel it again. Gary Ridgway's first wife, Claudia, he basically married her right out of high school. The two of them had a little bit of a whirlwind romance. One could say it was highly physical. And then they got married at the end of the summer. After graduation, Gary enlists in the Navy and is deployed to the Philippines. While he was away, Claudia started seeing somebody else. And by the time he got back, she was in another relationship. So this marriage ended very poorly. I think Gary Ridgway, who was so susceptible to profound feelings of rejection and abandonment, lashes out and he accuses her, well, you must be a prostitute if you're off sleeping with other people. On May 8th, 1983, authorities discover what they believe is the Green River Killer's 14th victim. When they find the body of 21-year-old Carol Ann Christensen in a wooded area southeast of Seattle, but some members on the task force aren't so sure. When Carol's body was found, it was completely different from all of the other victims. She was found with an empty bottle of wine in her hand, and there were fish laid across her body. Another weird thing was she was dressed, but her clothes had been put on backwards. It was just a bizarre scene that seemed very meticulously staged, almost in a ritualistic way. And it was very head-scratching for investigators. And there's another anomaly. Unlike most of the other victims, Carol Christensen isn't a sex worker. She was a single mother. Ah, here's a turning point now. Panic, boom! Raising a child and she had just gotten a job working at a restaurant. On her second day at this job, she was scheduled to come back that evening for the dinner shift. She never came back to work that night. She never went back home to be with her young daughter. And everybody who knew Carol knew that was completely out of character. The detective that was working that had pretty much eliminated her ex-husband and had pretty much come to a dead end. There were detectives that believed that it wasn't connected. But there were those of us who said, look, she's, she's been strangled and she's been placed in the woods. And we're in the middle of a serial murder case where females strangled, placed in the woods, should be on our list as a possible potential Green River victim. Reichert and his colleagues went out. Carol Ann Christensen is not only declared the Green River killer's 14th victim, she may hold the key to crack the case wide open. They found a very small amount of semen on the outside of her clothing. And that was collected basically for a blood type analysis. We were looking for actually a blood type because DNA was not a science. It was too soon. The science was not quite there yet. 
In the early 1980s, DNA analysis hasn't become standard in criminal investigations. So authorities preserve... As I described before, this is why so many of these guys got away back then. ...preserve the sample, hoping one day it will prove the linchpin in their case and finally bring the Green River Killer to justice. Medical examiners pick up the remains in a relatively small bundle, readying them for autopsy. Detectives say they expected to find one skeleton after a skull was found Saturday, but the unexpected discovery of three has left them shaken. Over the following weeks, they would go on to find four more bodies in this same area, this cluster. And one of these women was 18-year-old Mary Bridget Mian. She was eight months pregnant. Unlike the other victims, Mian does not come from a broken home. She was born to an Irish Catholic family. She was very religious. This was a very good family. With Bridget's parents, they cared very deeply and they, they tried to protect her. But in the end, she did end up getting in with the wrong crowd, even though she was very smart. Every couple of weeks, another girl's body was turning up. Every time you turned on the news or opened the paper, you saw new Green River killer victim found. In January of 1984, a new sheriff was appointed and right away said, we need to do something about this case and we're going to put together an enhanced task force because the bodies were piling up, because we had so many leads, we just needed help. By the end of 1984, authorities have recovered a total of 27 bodies and 14 women are still missing. Wow. Because the tip linking Gary Ridgway with Marie Malvar is never registered with the task force, Investigators are left with one viable suspect. Did you kill all those women or what? No, but I wish I did. I wish I did know who did. I talked to the detectives and I asked, who are your suspects? Who is your best suspect? And David's best suspect at the time was Melvin Foster. When Foster suddenly puts his car up for sale, an undercover officer buys it for $1,200, hoping a thorough search will provide them with the evidence they need. We discovered nude photographs in the trunk of his car of young prostitutes. We found uh, women's clothing and underwear hidden under the mat um, and under the back seat. They comb it top to bottom, but in terms of evidence, they come up with nothing. Then, in 1985, just like that, the killings appear to stop. A lot of times this will happen if a suspect was maybe arrested on other charges. Maybe the suspect died without investigators ever knowing who this person was. Maybe they had a big life change that just, maybe they moved away. I mean, there are things that can happen that kind of trigger these cooling off periods in a serial killer investigation. To go from that sort of volume to really not seeing much movement at all kind of made things a lot more difficult. You know, people just don't stop killing out of the blue. Serial killers continue to kill until they're caught. So this was very hard to work with for the Green River Task Force. But the killer doesn't disappear before first passing a macabre milestone. 
he becomes the most prolific serial killer in U.S. history with a body count in the 40s. Important to remember that most prolific at that point because they had not caught Samuel Little yet, who actually ended up becoming number one most prolific serial killer with, I want to say, about 93 confirmed kills. And that was confirmed by the FBI and detectives that investigated uh, him. But they didn't catch uh, Little, I want to say, until about 2014 or so. So, but yes, um, Gary Ridgway, a.k.a. the Green River Killer, did carry the title of most prolific serial killer in the United States uh, for a, a good amount of time. It's amazing how he didn't become more famous. I don't. I think it's because he didn't have like the same shock factors like John Wayne Gacy, who was a killer clown, or Jeffrey Dahmer eating his victims and also being homosexual, or Ted Bundy being a well-spoken Chad that studied at law school, defended himself in the first televised murder trial in U.S. history. Like all of these other more famous serial killers, the Zodiac Killer, who to this day still hasn't been caught. Um, the case breakers think that they discovered who it is, which if you guys watch my broadcast, I go over the individuals who were believed to be the suspects. But all these, uh, the Night Stalker who attacked anyone was and was extremely violent and had California going crazy in the 1980s. All these serial killers were uh, had some kind of like niche. The Green River Killer, though prolific, wasn't really unique in that degree because he had done everything that Bundy had already done. And Bundy was more of a character, right? He was over here wearing a cast and having the girls meet him. Hey, can you help me like move my books? Cause he was a college student, of course. Oh yeah, of course. And he was well-spoken and charismatic and charming and you know, good looking pause. So he'd bring him back to his buggy and then he hit him with a crowbar upside the head and then drag him in and put him in. And then, you know, obviously take him out to the woods and do whatever he did up there, dismembering them and all the other white, weird stuff he did. But the green river killer, didn't have that X factor like these guys. Samuel Little too didn't really have an X factor like that. That's why they're not talked about as much. But even though they're at the top of the list when it comes to body counts, the number of bodies is almost hard for us to even wrap our head around. At a certain point, they stop being individuals and it starts being a statistic. It was terribly depressing working these cases and not solving them and thinking there's other victims out there. And in some way, you know, we're responsible for that. I was burned out. I had gone to too many scenes, too many bones, too many dead bodies. As the task force stalls, life for Gary Ridgway heats up when he begins dating 41-year-old Judith Mawson. Judith had been coming out of an abusive relationship herself. And so when she meets Gary, he's sort of like the all-American man. And they connected immediately. It was almost like love at first sight between the two of them. She thought he was handsome and strong and safe. And he was good to her. I think that's what attracted her more than anything, the way he treated her, the way that he made her feel about herself. Eventually, Judith found out that Gary was the father of Matthew, and Judith got to know Matthew. She really, really liked the boy. They went on bicycle rides, they went camping, they went hiking. Hiking in the same woods, the Green River Killers secretly depositing his victims. Then, Years after Marie Malvar is last seen climbing into a dark red pickup of an unknown John, the task force learns the identity of the man she was last seen with. 
Gary Ridgway. They also discover Ridgway had been picked up for soliciting prostitution three years earlier in 1982. Investigators ask Ridgway to come in for an interview, and he readily agrees. He had this very open tone. He'd be like, hey guys, what's going on? And Gary basically said, yes, I've had sex with prostitutes before, but I didn't kill any of them. And then they asked him to take a polygraph, and he said, okay. It's somewhat unclear. It's important to note, guys, that polygraphs, you know, commonly known as lie detector tests, don't necessarily tell you if you're lying. What it does is it measures your bodily functions in response to questions. So what they do is they take a baseline. Hey, uh, what is your name? Oh, my name is, you know, Tom. Okay, what day were you born? Okay, my birthday is such and such day, right? They ask you questions that are true and you can't really lie about. Where do you live? I live at this address. Are the lights on right now? Yes, they are, etc. So they get baseline of your vitals, your sweat, heartbeat, um, you know, stomach tremors, all these different things that they use to me measure your phys physiological response. Then they once they get a baseline of what your temperance is when you answer questions, then they go ahead and ask you uh, more, you know, uh, incriminating questions about your criminal activity or whatever they're asking you, they intend to ask you about in the first place. And that's how they measure if you're being deceptive based on your physiological responses. Uh, but it's important to note that polygraphs are not admissible in court because there's plenty of instances where psychopaths and weirdos can definitely pass polygraph tests because they actually believe their lies. And then there's other instances where people are genuinely telling the truth, but the polygraph can read it as uh, being deceptive because they're just nervous. They don't necessarily know how to take a polygraph correctly or whatever it may be. So uh, polygraphs aren't necessarily fail safes. They get it. They're a tool in an investigator's kit to identify characteristics of deception, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's a smoking gun to identify deception. What happened with Ridgeway's polygraph, but it, it's been widely reported that he passed. It definitely wasn't the smoking gun they were looking for. And in light of that, uh, they let him go. Once again, the case stalls. That's when investigators get a surprising offer from an unlikely ally. We received a letter from Ted Bundy, who was in prison in Stark, Florida. And uh, the letter. Oh, I'm glad that I'm glad that they actually mentioned this. I didn't think this documentary was going to cover this. But yes, this is a little fact that uh, a lot of people don't report on. Said, I've been following this case and I believe that I can be of some help. Don't ask why I think I could be of help. But just know that I know I might be able to help you and your investigators. Translation. The way this guy is committing his criminal activity is almost identical to how I committed my criminal activity as far as, uh, you know, putting the women in isolated areas, in the woods, etc., strangling them, uh, them being um, a vulnerable class, right, females in this case. Uh, but Bundy actually, uh, though some of the women he dealt with were, you know, involved in sex work, a lot of the women that Bundy went after, guys, surprisingly, were actually college students, which makes it even crazier as to how he was able to evade law enforcement for so long as well. But what Bundy did was, Bundy was smart. He killed in multiple states, okay? He killed in, um, obviously started Washington, then he moved down to uh, Oregon. He killed some women in, uh, I want to say, in uh, Utah, Colorado, Florida, California, I think he might have killed uh, one or two in Idaho. Um, 
But the point I'm trying to make here is that he killed women on an interstate type level. And the reason why this is so important is because back in the 70s, there wasn't a uh, a combined police data, uh, I guess, um, database, excuse me, that was used to compile criminal statistics and or compile criminal activity like we have nowadays with the National Crime Information Center, a.k.a. NCIC, which is what I think it stands for, if I'm not mistaken, and Endless, National Law Enforcement uh National Law Enforcement Telecommunication System, which is, you know, the state version of NCIC, which is uh, which is the national database, which is run by the FBI. Uh, besides all the acronyms, the point is, is that there wasn't a centralized database to help law enforcement agencies communicate with each other when they had crimes that could potentially leave their own jurisdiction. So what you ended up having was a bunch of local police departments that had dead women that didn't know that there were other dead women in other states and other towns and other counties that matched the same demographics as the women that they had, right? The female victims that they had. And in this case, Bundy preferred women that were college age, typically, you know, somewhere between his son, his youngest victim, I think was 13, which is what ended up getting him the death penalty actually. But for the most of his victims were dark haired college age women, somewhere between 18 to 25. Okay. And, uh, and that's what he went after. But when states aren't able to communicate with each other and share information, well, now they don't have the full picture. They only have some of the picture. But when they're able to get all the victims and you know look at trends, et cetera, that's how they're able to identify these individuals. And they didn't start really doing this until later on in the investigation when bodies started to pile up. I think Bundy had a confirmed kill count of somewhere in the 30s, 30 to 33 uh, murders. So, And he was doing it across state lines, which is why he was able to evade law enforcement for so long. And if I'm not mistaken, it was the state of Colorado and Utah that actually were the first two to put it together. And uh, he ended up escaping out of Utah um, somewhere in the 70s, right before the new year. I want to say like 76 or 77, right before the new year, 77 or 78. And then he fled to Florida. And then Florida had known about his, his antics and they did a positive identification and they knew that he was on the run from uh, his charges out in Utah and Colorado, and that's why they pushed so hard for the death penalty. But Bundy was able to come forward because this guy had the same exact MO, so he knew what type of mindset he had. And as we discussed earlier, the beginning of the podcast, if you look at uh, you know, a lot of these serial killers, they tend to have very similar practices in committing their crimes. Uh, get into the mind of a serial killer. At the time, Bundy is the most notorious captured serial killer in American history. Suspected of killing over 30 women across seven states between 1974 and 1978. Detectives fly to Florida to meet with Bundy on... And if you guys look at those women that were on, the, uh, on his kill list there, they all looked extremely similar, right? So, you know, a lot of times guys have a, have a, have a type, these serial killers death row i remember when i first met him and he was so excited wanted to shake hands just to, you know fyi just so y'all know i haven't seen this podcast before so everything you heard me just say about bundy was off the top of my head and i was still pretty accurate so i got to give myself a don demarco watch this podcast this um uh documentary for the first time just like y'all are so this is all off the top pause pleasure to meet you and have you here in my prison and I remember thinking, how many lives has this hand squeezed out and snuffed out? The men talked for hours, with Bundy offering some surprising insights. One thing that Ted Bundy did say was he believed that the Green River Killer, whoever he might be, 
could be returning to the scenes and having sex with the dead bodies of his victims. Ted Bundy infamously is also a necrophile, so it's almost like he could see the monster in himself playing out in the Green River Killer. Nobody at that point had even considered. I've never heard anyone say necrophile. I think the term is necrophiliac, but either either or, yes. Bundy was definitely known for going back and doing that with his victims as well. That the Green River Killer was also a necrophile. It's a whole different layer of disgusting. In June 1986, the skeletal remains of 19-year-old Kimberly Nelson, a known sex worker last seen on the SeaTac Strip three years earlier, are discovered in a wooded area 35 miles east of Seattle. Paige Miley, Nelson's associate, tells detectives that after her friend disappeared, she was approached by a strange man in his mid-30s driving a maroon pickup truck. She was actually able to sit down with investigators and give a description of this man that led to what was really the first comprehensive, usable sketch to be presented in this case. You could tell it was scary. It's a mirror image. The hair, the piercing eyes, the nose, everything, it looked just like him. Shortly after police release the sketch, 20-year-old Rebecca Gard comes forward with this claim about a man who picked her up. He got angry and he knocked me down and started choking me and pushing my face into the ground. I couldn't even talk. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't do nothing. He probably wanted to do something. Maybe. I felt like I, I was his little revenge toy or something. You know, he was taking all his anger out on me. And as I had the chance, when he stopped, I grabbed my purse and ran and got away. Guard recalls the man was also driving a dark colored pickup truck with a canopy top over the bed and he's a dead ringer for the composite sketch. She says, yes, that looks like my attacker. And then she starts going through mugshots and she picks out the mugshot of Gary Ridgway. Based on two eyewitness accounts, investigators believe they are zeroing in on the Green River Killer, 37-year-old divorced dad, Gary Leon Ridgway. They had Gary's photo in the system. And when they showed it to Paige Miley and Rebecca Gargway, they said, that's him. Rebecca coming forward with her story and ultimately identifying Ridgway as her attacker was really what put him in the forefront as the prime suspect. Police immediately placed Ridgway under surveillance. They followed him, they watched him, they saw him going to the strip, they saw him talking to women, but he never killed anybody. On April 7, 1987, police searched Ridgeway's vehicles, home, and work locker. One of my friends called me at home and said, you're not going to believe this. They came and got a bunch of stuff from Gary. They took his clothes and everything. 
It felt like a punch in my stomach. Investigators combed through every item in Gary Ridgeway's possession, looking for anything that might connect him to the murders. The news leaves Gary's son, Matthew, who was 12 years old at the time, confused. Did your mom tell you about the Green River investigation? She told me about the Green River investigation. She asked me if I knew what it was. Did she tell you that your, your father was under investigation? I don't remember if she told me that if he was arrested or if he was under investigation, but there was questions in, in it that they were asking my dad. The media came to me that I wasn't to say no comment. Okay. Did your father ever talk to you about it? No. Marsha told Matthew to say no comment, most likely because she didn't want him involved. She didn't want his face on the news. She didn't want him to be known as the, the son of, of a potential killer or even a suspected killer. Perhaps no one's more shocked than Ridgeway's new girlfriend, Judith Mawson. He was reassuring me that everything would be okay. And it was painful. Judith was crying. She was sobbing into his chest and asking, what is happening? Why are they talking to you? And she said that Gary was calm. Matter of fact, he just simply said, the police are doing their job and they're looking at a lot of different individuals. They made a mistake. They got the wrong guy. Everything's going to be fine. I can't even imagine how frustrating this entire investigation must have been for the task force because now they've had multiple strong leads and they have another really strong lead pointing them to Gary Ridgway. However, the police found nothing, literally nothing, nothing in his house, nothing in his car, nothing in his locker, completely clean. Gary Ridgway came off as a normal, loving dad, a doting husband. One year later, Ridgway's luck continues to improve when he and his girlfriend, Judith Mawson, marry. They have a lovely little intimate wedding, a neighbor hosted in their yard. One of his coworkers is his best man. It's just a very happy, joyful time. Judith really loved. Meanwhile, my man was out here killing all kinds of girls, bro, and no one even knows. And he's getting married and he's like, oh, yeah, life is awesome. Let's cut the cake. Meanwhile, he was cutting girls' circulation off, man. Crazy. Loved Gary's son, Matthew, and Matthew spent a lot of time at the house with Gary and Judith. They really blended their families in a pretty seamless and beautiful way, and they had a lovely life together. He made me feel like a newlywed every day. It seems Gary is finally ready to turn the page on his contentious divorce with his ex. Gary shows up at Marsha's house with a box of women's lingerie and clothing items. And he insists that these must be things that she left at the house. And Marsha tells him, well, these are all items from a much smaller woman. Take them back. And he goes, oh, well, I thought they were yours. And he just leaves the box at her house in an almost perverse way of letting her know that he's having sex with other women. As hey, real nigga time, baby. <laughs> That's the only thing he did do right besides all the other stupid crap he was doing. But hey, I guess he understood that, hey, man, girls only operate correctly when they know they can be replaced. Gary and his new bride quietly enjoy their life together 
The Green River Task Force continues to see even serial killers like this weirdo understand basic, you know, um, RP truths that women act the best when they know you have other women in line. Of course, not in this case, because this dude's out here, you know, choking hookers, which is not what you want to be doing. But, you know, assuming that you're not doing anything violent to other women, this actually works in practice. But don't do what this idiot Gary Ridgway is doing as far as uh, dealing with other women. Otherwise, you'll end up having a documentary after you and serving life in prison. Stall. In 1989, it disbands entirely bringing its six-year manhunt to a painful end. I was angry about that. All those years of beating your head against the wall with all that information, I packed all my stuff up in a little cardboard box. I said, well, you know, after all that effort, this is it. I think people really felt like this was a cold case and that they may never know what happened to these women or who was responsible for their deaths. Nearly 40 murders remain unsolved. Close to a decade passes without the discovery of any new bodies. It seems like the Green River Killer's long shadow over the Seattle area is finally receding. But Dave Reichert can't let it go. In 1997, he's appointed King County Sheriff and reopens the case. Pictures of their faces and the pictures of the sites where they were found are still fresh in my mind. To be able to all of a sudden be in a position now to make that decision, we're going to solve this case. Reichert's recently heard of a new cutting-edge technology that might finally help crack it. DNA testing. There was a lot more discussion about DNA science and the progression of DNA science and where it was, the possibilities of some lab being able to examine our DNA evidence. They were able to collect semen from three of the victims. They also had some DNA from the suspects. They had some saliva. They also had a little bit of hair. If investigators can connect the victim's DNA samples to those collected from their potential suspects, it could be the smoking gun they need to bring the mysterious killer's nearly 20-year reign of terror to an end. Two decades after the discovery of the Green River Killer's first victim, Sheriff Dave Reichert is on the verge of cracking the deadliest cold case in American history. The crime lab called Dave Reichert and they said they think that they had enough to potentially make a connection. In 2001, the Washington Crime Lab matches the DNA profile of the semen found on one of the victims to a suspect. Reichert recalls the moment he received the landmark news. I looked at Tom and I said, Tom, are you trying to tell me that we caught, we caught the guy? And he just kind of smiled a little bit and he, and then he reached into his pocket and he pulled out this envelope and he handed it to me. He says, yeah, Dave, and, and his name is in here. I opened it up and it's a mugshot of Ridgeway when he was arrested in early 1982 for patronizing a prostitute. It's quite an emotional, quite an emotional moment.
you chase the guy around for those many years and you finally find out who he is, man. That's a big deal. That really is a big deal. I can't explain to you guys the gratification that you get as an investigator when you finally get your guy and you, you know, or you're about to, you put cuffs on him or you know who he is finally and you're able to put cuffs on him. I can't even imagine uh, the satisfaction he experienced at that moment. It, does, it could easily bring you to tears because when you're invested in a case of this degree, especially a case of this magnitude where people are dying and you feel like they're dying on your watch, you do feel an enormous sense of guilt. And when you're finally able to rectify that to some degree, obviously those lives are lost, but you can, you're responsible for getting that family justice to some level. It's a very emotional moment. Uh, and I can definitely understand where he's coming from. I know some people might be like, what do you mean emotional, blah, blah, blah. When you're putting in years, hours, sweat equity, you're personally invested in these types of cases. Cause I ain't gonna lie to you guys. Anytime you do an investigation like this, you're going to be personally invested. We're human beings too. Whether you're a detective, a special agent, uh, you know, a postal inspector, Whatever it is, whenever you're investigating crimes, especially crimes of this magnitude, yes, you start to get personally invested. For me, uh, some of the cases that made me invest the most personally, where I would, like felt a sense of duty, was going after the child pedophiles. Always arresting those guys is always a great sense of satisfaction. So I can only imagine going after a serial killer that has this type of notoriety, been on the run for years at this point, eluding you all these years, finally identifying that guy, right? Because he was stupid enough to bust nuts and not clean up after himself. Hey, man. That's definitely a Don DeMonco Gary Ridgway. Gotcha, bitch! The unsuspecting father, husband, and factory worker. On November 30th, 2001, after nearly two decades terrorizing the Seattle region and captivating the nation, Investigators quietly arrest Gary Ridgway at his job at the Kenworth Truck Factory. They actually just let him finish his shift and they confronted him as he was walking out of the building. And allegedly when they read him his rights and arrested him, he just sort of said, okay. As he walked past me, I looked him straight in the eye and he looked at me and I said, gotcha asshole. My brother called me and he said, guess what? They caught the Green River Killer. And I said, his name wasn't Gary Ridgway, was it? And he goes, how did you know? I've been telling you I worked with him at Kenworth. I was one of the fooled because he could be charming. He could be fun. He could be helpful. He's a very intelligent person. Police bring in Ridgway's 26-year-old son, Matthew now serving with the Marines in California for questioning. Suffice to say, this uh, information, this uh, uh, disclosure that your father was arrested for these crimes came as a complete surprise to you. Is that right? Oh, yes. You had no idea, never given any indication over the years that you would have been involved in this other than the one conversation you had with your mother. Yes. What I can picture in my head right now, the Ted Bundy thing, to where he's you know, one guy one minute, another guy the other minute. And uh, is that how you nobody, see your father? Right now, yes. When you listen to those tapes, Matthew's behavior and emotional range was very underwhelming, very flat and two-dimensional. I get the sense that Matthew was torn between what he thought of his dad, protecting his dad and his love for his dad versus the reality of what was going on and trying to accept it. He couldn't fathom 
this man, the man he knew, the man he loves, being the Green River Killer. It wasn't possible to him. Gary's wife of 13 years, Judith, is also in shock. I was in shock that day when I heard someone driving up in the driveway and it's, I couldn't believe it. I still can't believe it, but it has happened. It was like a brick wall dropped in front of me and didn't know what to do. Everything stopped. When you hear this for the first time, your reaction is, no way. There's no way. I know my dad or I know my husband. There's absolutely no way. They've got this completely wrong. So you basically have a cube. And on this side of the cube is the killer, the hunter, the predator. And on this side of the cube is the father, husband, caretaker. And it depends on which side of the cube you want to show to the person you're dealing with. On December 18th, 2001, Ridgeway enters court and makes this stunning declaration. Mr. Ridgeway, his plea is not guilty to all charges. All right, that's common, guys, because, you know, the reason why you've always plead guilty, right, nine out of ten times in the beginning stages of any investigation is because it's a tactic by the defense to try to go ahead and get a better deal, right? So if you plead guilty up front, well, the government has no incentive to give you a lesser sentence or, in this case, not give you the death penalty. So you go ahead and you say, all right, not guilty. So you create the, you know, insinuation that you might go to trial because the government never wants to go to trial because going to trial is always a risky business because it's a jury trial at the end of the day and they got to convince beyond a reasonable doubt and the burden is always on the prosecution so they look at it like let's get a plea deal that's why 90 percent plus of cases always end up getting a plea deal so in order to get a good plea deal the defense has to strategically always place a not guilty plea in the beginning of the arrest process, which is typically your initial, well, at your initial appearance, you're just read your rights and told, yo, this is what you're arrested for, etc. Then you go to something called an arraignment. That's the more formal proceeding where they not only tell you what you're being charged with, that's where you actually enter in a plea. Okay. So the initial appearance, you get just brought in front of a judge within 24 to 78, 72 hours, which is your legal right. Right. Then after that few days or a few weeks might pass, then you, you have your counsel at this point. Um, whether you hire private or you have one appointed to you because you don't have the money to do so, you uh, you go ahead and put in your uh, your plea, which nine out of ten times is almost always going to be not guilty at the arraignment unless they had you know previously worked out some kind of deal or maybe an information was filed versus a full-on indictment. Typically, if an information is in, in, filed by the prosecutor, that means that you've been cooperating to some degree, which we've broken down some cases and I explained in more detail what an information is, but. It's not surprising that the person would not plead guilty. Obviously, this documentary maker isn't aware of how the criminal justice system really works. But yeah, this is very common to not plead guilty in the beginning stages of your arrest. Ridgeway said, you don't have anything on me. You have my DNA on, on prostitutes. And you already know that I was with a lot of prostitutes. I admitted that outright. So why wouldn't my DNA be found on them? Prosecutors know DNA evidence alone will not be enough for a conviction. But they have another ace up their sleeve. 
When investigators examine the work coveralls Ridgeway wore while spray painting trucks at his job, they notice small specks of paint. They then re-examine the clothing and ligatures recovered from several victims and discover similar paint specks. It was a very... Now they've effectively linked him to the murders, <laughs> right? It, well, he wasn't just dumb enough to bust nuts. He was also dumb enough to leave paint drips as well. <laughs> Very specific kind of paint that was high-end and only found on trucks and essentially what Gary did for a living. And that confirmed that he had killed Wendy Caulfield, Deborah Bonner, and Deborah Estes. Bumbocat! The pain evidence, it blew the defense attorney away. Then they came to us and said, we want to make a deal. But police are only able to connect Ridgeway to seven of his nearly suspected 50 victims. Detectives and prosecutors realized the only way we are going to be able to get the confirmation for the victims, families, the only way we're going to be able to truly close these cases is if he confesses. So we ended up... Uh, making a deal with the devil. Prosecutors tell Ridgeway if he will make a full confession and help them recover the bodies of any other victims, they won't push for the death penalty. Uh, very common, by the way, guys, with these serial killers where they'll show where the bodies are um, to avoid the death penalty. Um, obviously, some of them didn't, you know, don't get this, uh, this privilege. Ted Bundy being one of them, John Wayne Gacy, they didn't, neither of them got it. They got the death penalty. But um, but this is a common tactic where they'll say, hey, I'll show you where the bodies is, get some closure, where the bodies are, excuse me. And that will a lot of times save them from getting that lethal injection electric chair or uh, shooting squad. <laughs> if you're in the state of Utah, I think they still practice shooting squads. But the most common nowadays is the lethal injection. Uh, Ted Bundy actually got the electric chair, though. Despite the fact that he had killed so many other people, Gary Ridgway was absolutely afraid of dying. And so if the only way to live was to tell the truth, then he would do that. Gary, we're going out to 410 today. Road trip. Road trip. Happy Father's Day to all my fellow fathers. Yeah, same to you. Yeah. We're, we're not going to go over to the Museum of Flight today. It's free for Father's Day. Is it? Yes. Maybe we can go there for lunch. Yeah. Are we going out to the first one or going out with the first one that comes to us? Or do you know yet? Oh, what order? Do you want him to go from first to last? Whatever's best. Whatever's easiest for you. First. The, the, the first coming in. Not, not number one. One by the meal would be better. We're looking for a road off the right. Dirt road. And I thought it was... So I was right across from here. It's all grown up so much. If we were to, if we were to locate any one of these sites, mm -hmm. we'd make the rest of them easier for you to find. Yes. Some uh, there'll be a there'll be a body of across a guardrail, and one by a milepost, and then there'll one be by that, that hill I told you back back there, and then one by the water, and then the one I brought through here. On Father's Day 2003, 
Ridgeway leads investigators to the remains of three additional victims, including that of Marie Malvar, last seen with Ridgeway when she disappeared in April 1983. It really came full circle because Marie was really the, the first victim to point investigators in Ridgeway's direction all those years ago when her boyfriend and her father found Ridgeway's truck. Looking back now, investigators believe that Marie may have been present in that home at the time that police came to question him. They were just so close so many times. Um, it's heartbreaking. Five months later, Gary Ridgeway finally brings the case to a close. Guilty, guilty, guilty. When he pleads guilty to 48 counts of aggravated first degree murder. Holy bombocat! Judith was sitting on the sofa in her home, holding hands with her best friend. And together they watched Gary say those words, guilty, guilty, guilty. She told me that when she saw the tears running down Gary's face, she saw his lips quivering, and she thought, my God, this is it. He really is a killer. You son of a bitch, why did you do this to me? Why did you put me through all this? She had no clue, man. With the Green River Killer now unmasked, prosecutors and investigators spend the next five months plumbing the depraved depths of his mind. What we're going to do today, Gary, is we're going to try and unlock memories by starting at the beginning. Starting at the beginning? First thing we want to talk about is the first one. That was uh, Cofield. Uh, Picked her up on Pacific Highway, asked her if she was dating and what I wanted. What was her reply? Yeah, I'll date you. Date you. So, so we, you arrive at your spot. Right at the spot. I get behind her. And as soon as I came, and she kind of relaxed, you know, that's when I jumped on her and started choking her. This crazy bastard. He, he he came and he still didn't come to his senses, man. Holy Bumbocat! Idiot. But you know, you would think like, oh, maybe I busted a nut. Maybe I got this moment of clarity. Maybe I shouldn't do this. But what does he do? Oh, oh let me try to fucking choke this chick out, man. So uh, it speaks to the depraved, uh, you know, state that this guy's in going wild like this. It's not even so much what he said. It was the way he said it. He was so matter of fact so level like he was talking about what he had for lunch he's so disconnected and so nonchalant about his crimes that just seeing him on a screen makes me feel sick to my stomach saying stop moving and i'll let you go and that was over and over and over again but i wasn't gonna let her go it was just my way of lying to her Keep her from fighting, she stopped fighting, and then just kept on choking. 
Ridgeway then makes an even more shocking claim. His body count isn't 49 women, it's nearly 70. And his most disturbing revelation is yet to come. After admitting to killing 70 women during his two-decade rampage, Gary Ridgway finally comes clean about a victim detectives originally debated was even one of his kills. Single mother Carol Ann Christensen, who Ridgway now admits to killing, then dressing backwards and posing with food items. And in another revelation, Ridgway confesses that, unlike all his other victims, he and Carol Ann had actually been dating. I think they were on maybe their third date. They'd had consensual sex. She was, you know, going to be running late for a shift, and they were engaged in sexual activity. She said, you know, hey, I have to get going. Can you hurry up? And he completely lost his mind. Sure, me when she didn't have the time. Didn't have time for me. Another serial killer. And, and guys, this is you might be thinking this is kind of weird, etc., which it definitely is. This guy's on some whack shit. But this is a very common trait with serial killers where they need to assert dominance and be able, they feel they want to feel like they can control their victims. Jeffrey Dahmer did this too. He used to kill his victims for wanting to leave. Okay. Uh John Wayne Gacy as well. That's a common trend with a lot of these serial killers, is that need for some type of dominance uh and controlling the victim. So in this case, um, someone that might have not ended up becoming a victim. Uh, but just had to leave at a certain time. It was what triggered that instinct in him, and he decided to go ahead and make a homicidal. And him crying about it might actually show uh, that this was one of the few victims that he had some semblance of care for because a lot of times why serial killers are so difficult to catch is because they kill people randomly without necessarily some real um, ties to them, right? The only thing that ties a lot of the times is they might meet like a, a, a look feature that that person is looking for, but a lot of times it's random. Like they, there wasn't like real intent to, or excuse me, there isn't like a real motive to kill them. Like, you know, some husband killing his wife or some wife killing her husband for the life insurance policy. Like in this case with serial killers, it's, they looked a certain way. There was an opportunity. Uh, this is what I'm turned on by sexually or aroused by, or I get gratification from it. And I'm going to go ahead and commit this murder. So in this case with this woman, he actually liked her, but her wanting to leave, you know, challenge his, you know, authority right that he likes to have a lot, is a, with a lot of these serial killers and he ended up killing her uh which jeffrey Dahmer did the same thing as well with another one of his victims that he ended up actually liking and um you know but a lot of times when these serial killers kill a victim they don't know them and that actually makes it easier for them to do so so in this case this is probably one of his harder uh kills that was he had to do or he did did have for So you had to kill her. Had to kill her. Did you care for her, Gary? I cared for her. Yes. I cared for her. Why the fish and the sausage, Gary? Uh, it has to do with throwing away. So was this were these things you didn't need? It didn't need her anymore. So she was like the garbage in your refrigerator, Gary. Yes, she was. 
while Ridgway has almost a photographic memory for the locations where he dumped the 49 bodies, he remembers little about the women themselves. And this is a common tactic with the serial killers, like I said before. They kill their victims and pick them randomly so it's easier for them to, make, to do the killing. So when they're strangling the person, they don't know them. It's easier to do that, okay? But when you know them, it's obviously more difficult to do which is why a lot of these serial killers are able to rack up not you know body count after body count after body count because they don't know the individuals that personal um connection is not there so it makes it easier to execute the murder he didn't look at these women or these young girls as human beings he said that they knew they were going to die and they if you guys want to see another example of this it's actually very interesting Go, watch the john wayne gacy interview uh before he was executed they show him a photograph of all of his victims and he looks at it blankly and he literally says I don't recognize any of these guys. And I believe that because you have to put yourself in a crazy mindset, right? Where you almost look at them as objects, not human beings, to be able to kill them in the manner that he's killing them, which in his case, he used to strangle them with ropes or drown them. Uh, and he ended up putting them in the crawl space of his house. And if you guys want to watch that podcast and get more details, check it out. I did like a really in-depth breakdown on John Wayne Gacy, AKA the killer clown. And he'll, his victims were men. Uh, he was a sick bastard that had uh, very homosexual tendencies. Begged for their lives. He didn't care. They meant nothing to you. You never felt one thing for these women. No, I didn't. No. Didn't feel one thing for them. Ridgeway put sex workers into a category. They were worthless. There was no reason to have any empathy for them because they were society's throwaways when i killed him I, that's what got me my gratification i killed him he was kill 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 i think that's normal here it's not normal no all he cared about was the pleasure that and the power that he got from killing them and then they were just like objects to be used and trash to be discarded when he was done with them investigators continue probing ridgeway's mind hoping to discover what turned him into one of the most prolific serial killers in history. He cites his experience with sex workers while stationed in the Philippines during the Vietnam War as part of his motivation. So this was your first experience? This was the first experience. Did you catch any diseases? Yeah, I caught um, three to four times different kind of, you know, venereal disease. Holy bumbuckers! Yeah, I was banging them raw. Well, I mean, I guess when you're out here committing murders, you know, you're not really too concerned with your sexual health. I guess my man out here doing all kinds of crazy shit. Ridgeway also reveals that it was the breakup of his second marriage to Marcia and his loss of custody to Matthew that really pushed him over the edge. Did you love her? And I loved her, yeah. Man, if he read the, my book, Why Women Deserve Less, okay, he probably wouldn't have been doing all this stupid shit because in the book, I talk, which it's in stores, by the way, right now, guys. Um, in the book, I talk about not being a simp, not letting women control your destiny. And if he had read the book or had some kind of RP awareness, he would not have done this because we teach you guys on this side of the internet that it's unacceptable, right, to do anything to a woman that she doesn't want to do. If she doesn't want to be with you, it's fine. Go get another girl, replace her, and that actually makes you more attractive, but she might want to come back. But when you're over here raging uh, because you lost a girl or whatever, that's when issues arise, okay? This is what happens when you can't control your emotions. Gary Ridgway, a.k.a. the Green River Killer, man. Um, obviously, at the worst level, 
But so many guys find themselves in this position where they get divorced. They don't know how to deal with it. Maybe they go into dealing with prostitutes. Maybe they go into RP rage. Maybe a combination of the two. But this is why you need to be aware of female nature so you don't do stupid shit like this guy's doing or did uh, right now. I hated her when we got divorced. Because you wanted to stay together. Yeah. We to stay together, have a family. Were you mad? Yeah, I was mad. You don't get mad. You just accept reality. She don't like you no more. Obviously, it's gonna you're going to be sad. But you move on. And this guy couldn't move on, and he ended up committing a whole bunch of heinous crimes because of it. There's a misunderstanding that psychopaths have no emotion. They have a lot of emotions. Anger, um, arrogance. They certainly can develop relationships. How deep do their emotions go? How deep do their feelings go to their kids? We don't know. Tell me when you first started having fantasies about hurting prostitutes. I'm saying right after the separation and divorce of Marsha. These women have nothing to do with your ex-wife. Why? Well, they were my scapegoat. I couldn't kill my ex-wife. I couldn't you, kill... You'd get caught. Because then I'd get caught. I could kill a, a prostitute and have a lot less chance of getting caught. Ridgway also claims that meeting Judith Mawson, his current wife, in 1985 curbed his urge to kill. Jesus comes along and I cared for her. Just, just you cared? Cared, I, yeah, I, I still care for her. You love her? Mm -hmm. That's one of the major reasons why I stopped. I slowed down and, and I stopped completely. There was definitely something about Judith that tapped into some tiny bit of humanity in Gary. Gary told me um, in an interview that he loved Judith and he thought she was the best woman for him. And he even told me that if he had met her earlier, maybe he wouldn't have killed as many women. I asked Judith over and over and over, did you ever witness Gary losing his temper? Did he mistreat you? And she said, Penny, being married to Gary was the absolute best time of my life. He never mistreated me. It was completely unbelievable to her that the other Gary. Because he was mistreating all these other crazy ass chicks, man. That's why. Bumbacut! <sighs> Guys, this is why the RP is important, so you don't end up like this guy. He existed. Judith wouldn't see any signs because what signs would we be looking for? He's not psychotic. Most of the signs are things that we get out of serial killer fiction and film. Those are not signs in ordinary relationships. Gary was incredibly successful at convincing the world that he was Ned Flanders, that he was completely harmless, that he was just a nice guy and a good family man. How did he keep his shit together? How did he keep himself so hidden during those times, going back to his wife and coming to work and talking with us i'm thinking he was in a battle he's in the battle for good and evil and evil usually won gary also confirms fellow serial killer ted bundy's shocking prediction to police 
he had in fact returned to some of his victims' corpses. All right. So then you said, you know, you like to go back and have sex. You know, you wanted to have them because so you could have kind of like a collection of bodies that you could go have sex with. And then you said, but I didn't really go back and have sex with all that many. No, no, I, I think I counted 11 out of them. I had sex with them afterwards. Necrophilia is all about power and control, which is all Gary was seeking his entire life. If you have sex with a live human, they can say no, they can reject you. A dead body can't do that. He had ownership and control over those women. Ridgeway admits that his desire to kill quickly became an urge he simply could not control. I just loved killing women. When I started killing, I just kept on killing them. Wanted sex and and it was easy and didn't have no morals and events so that didn't conscience didn't stop me. Killing women. Bumbocat! Strangling women, he was good at it, and it was his career. And he was proud of it. He really thought he was the best serial killer out there. Just when investigators think it can't get any worse, Ridgeway drops his biggest bombshell yet. To help accomplish his unspeakable objectives, the evil father used the person closest to him, his son, Matthew. Gary, from the outside, looked so normal that it was almost impossible to imagine that anything else could have been going on. Yeah, why do you think you didn't have any conscience or morals? Think I, you were born without it? I had consciousness back when I was younger, but after a while it started up and it didn't happen anymore. What caused that? Funny, I was in control of my life when I was out killing and there was nobody, nobody uh, could tell me what to do. I could just go out and kill one person and act pretty normal the next day. Not only could Ridgeway control his two worlds, he could also merge them to achieve his unspeakable ends. To appear less threatening, the father would occasionally take his young son Matthew with him to help lure his victims. You killed one of the girls when Matthew was with you, right? Yes, I did. Now, some people would think... Oh, wow. A tactic that uh, Ted Bundy also employed with the cast. Uh, they do that to be more disarming. That was a kind of an unusual activity, right? Mm -hmm. What did you enjoy about doing it? How did, did you feel any differently about killing one while Matthew was in the car with you? I feel a little bit remorse. Matthew asked a few questions, but... What did Matthew ask? He asked me where the lady was, and I said she's walking home. Killing wow. Bumbocat! Or was Matthew by? That wasn't the right thing to do. Detectives asked Gary what he would have done if Matthew had gotten out of the truck and seen him. His response is chilling. If he had observed you kill one of the women, would you have killed him? No, probably not. I don't know. Possibly, though. It's possible. Would he have? Bumbocat! Who knows, but that he gave thought to that? That that his 
ability to keep doing what he was doing was far more important than his son's life. That tells me he, he doesn't have a deep sense of attachment to his son. His son is expendable. Mr. Ridgway, the time has come for the final chapter of your reign of terror in our community. Today has been a long time coming for the brutal murders that you committed. One month after Ridgway pleads guilty, he's sentenced to 48 consecutive life sentences with no possibility of parole. They made sure that he would never, ever get out of prison. They knew that he would spend the rest of his life behind bars. During that hearing, several of the victims' families stand and condemn Ridgeway for his unconscionable actions. Today is not about Gary Ridgeway, but about my sister, Cynthia Jean Hines, and the other 47 women whose lives he chose to take. For the past 20 some odd years, my family and I, our lives have been like a roller coaster. But today, that roller coaster has ended. She was just an immature teenager trying to find her, her way in life before it was snuffed out by Gary Ridgway. I will never forgive him for that. He's going to go to hell, and that's where he belongs. I was only five when my mother died, and when my dad told me that she was never coming home. I found out on Mother's Day. Giselle was a wonderful, caring, loving young girl. A few months after she disappeared, I received a phone call saying they found her, her body. We miss her every day, and it will never stop. Not a day goes by over these years that I haven't wondered what she would have become. There are many things I would like to say about my sister Mary Meehan and the short life she had, but I feel it would fall upon deaf ears from the one individual, Gary Ridgway, who needs to hear it the most. He doesn't care. He could care less. You've robbed me of my oldest sister. You robbed my son of his auntie. You offered her a ride and persuaded her to get into your car. May God have no mercy on your soul. You are in one word, evil. I heard that she struggled for her life. And I told my mom, I said, how am I supposed to live knowing that? How am I supposed to go through this life knowing that in my mind? It was devastating to listen to. Um, the Yeah, guys, and these are the victim impact statements. Victim impact statements are typically read on the day that the individual is sentenced or right, you know, right before uh, they're sentenced. And basically, it plays a huge role in the judge taking all of the facts and factors of the case and imposing a sentence on an individual. So um, they get the impact statements. Judge goes back, thinks about it a bit with all the facts and everything else that is brought into the case, the reports, the victim testimony, etc. And that's when they come back with their uh, judgment. But yeah, this is a lot of the times victim impact statements do have quite a bit of weight when it comes to what the judge imposes on the defendant. Impact statements were obviously emotional. There were moments where it almost appeared that Gary Ridgway himself was getting emotional about some of these victims. I'm sorry for killing these ladies. 
they had their whole lives ahead of themselves ahead of them i'm sorry for causing he's not sorry he's just sorry he got caught causing so much pain to so many families one of the moments that really struck me was the father who who told Ridgeway, I forgive you. Mr. Ridgeway, um, there are people here that hate you. I'm not one of them. I forgive you for what you've done. You've, you've made it difficult to live up to what I believe, and that is what God says to do, and that's to forgive. And he doesn't say to forgive just certain people. He says to forgive all. I know you guys are probably wondering, why does he have those rainbow suspenders? I don't, if he's referring to God, this is back in the early 2000s. I don't think he plays for the other team, if you know what I'm saying. Um, I think maybe this is just some kind of strange fashion sense. Uh, he doesn't come off as playing for the other team for me. But uh, I want you guys to see uh, Ridgeway's response to this. So you are forgiven, sir. And seeing Ridgeway actually have an emotional reaction to that, I think that was profound. Yeah, because let's be honest here. He probably... He knew everyone was going to hate him, so that's expected, right? Like, yeah, everyone's going to hate me. It is what it is. I'm prepared for this. I did something terrible. But for someone to actually say, what you did was terrible, but I forgive you, well, now you can't hide behind that, you know, that barrier that you created and prepared yourself for because you didn't expect someone to forgive you, and I think that probably hurt him the most. Gary was sort of forced in that moment to feel the weight of what he had done. In looking at your life, it comes as no surprise that you had such little disregard for the lives of your victims. You violated the sanctity of every relationship in your life, including your own son. When he was of a tender age, you even used his existence and presence as a means to gain the confidence of your victims. In the years since Ridgeway's conviction, other skeletal remains have been found in wooded areas surrounding Seattle. Some believe they are Ridgeway's additional victims. I don't know if we'll ever know the exact magnitude of Gary Ridgeway's kills. He was put away for 48. He confessed to upwards of 75. My instinct is to believe that that's true, but that's something that we just may never get the answer to. I'm sure there are certain places where more victims of his are, but he kept those to himself as his little secret, something to hold on to as he sits in his cell for the rest of his life, knowing his precious properties out there not being disturbed by law enforcement or human hands of any kind. Whatever secrets Gary Ridgway still has, he will likely take to his grave. The 73-year-old serial killer continues serving. Well, until that uh, Netflix documentary comes out. <laughs> his life sentence in solitary confinement at the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla. Not much is known about his son, Matthew, or his wife, Marcia. Both avoid the public spotlight. And Gary's third wife, Judith, 
has changed her name and lives in an undisclosed location. All because of the sins of the father. This was your life, right? You were the Green River Killer. I don't know how I get it out of my head to get get it to you. It didn't ma it didn't mean anything to me. Just killing them and okay. get rid of them. But I know as you walk out of this courtroom at the end of the day, after Mr. Ridgeway has been sentenced and gone, I know that your heart will still be heavy with sorrow. I ask you to remember those 48 young women as people who had unexplored dreams, hopes, aspirations, and families that loved them deeply. Hold on to those memories, cherish those memories, and try to abandon the others. Mr. Ridgway, I trust that your lawyers have shared with you the letters written by the victim families. I hope you read those letters and I hope you heard the message of their families as they poured out their emotions then and today, describing the young victims as real persons, real persons who were loved and had lives in front of them. While you could not face them as you took their lives, if you have a drop of emotion anywhere in your existence, you will face those young women in your dreams and private thoughts of your grisly deeds. And sir, if you have that drop of emotion, you will be haunted for the balance of your life. Rest in peace to all those uh, women, right? Uh, no one is perfect, but no one deserves to die in that gruesome of a fashion. And, uh, you know, obviously your boy Gary Ridgway is a all right guys and that is the green river killer aka gary ridgeway hope you guys enjoyed that podcast uh i know there were some graphic moments in it but hey you know this is what happens with these serial killers man and you guys tend to love this content so you know this has been another episode of fed 1811 breaking down your favorite criminal cases, guys. Don't forget to like the video, subscribe to the channel, and I'll catch you guys on the next episode. Peace. I was a special agent with Homeland Security Investigations, okay, guys? HSI. The cases that I did mostly were human smuggling and drug trafficking. No one else has these documents, by the way. Here's what FedEx covers. Dr. Lafredo confirmed lacerations due to stepping on glass. Murder investigation. See him reaching in his jacket. You don't know. And he's positioning. Been on February 13, 2019. You're facing two counts of premeditated murder. Racketeering and Rico conspiracy. Young, young slime life. Here and after referred to as YSL. The defendant's 6'9. Uh, and then this.